My name is Katie Schultz. My husband and I have attended Lakeland since back in the days when we met in the theater. When I was a little girl taking piano lessons, I used to always want to just practice all the popular music. For me, back then, that would have been uh, Wind Beneath My Wings and Beauty and the Beast. And my piano teacher used to always say, Katie, you can practice the popular music after you've done all your training with the classical stuff. That's your dessert, your, your popular music. When you're in seminary, getting to preach is the dessert getting to finally share all the stuff that we've been learning this whole time. So I'm very excited to continue the How Should We Then Live series with you. I don't know about you, but as the mom of two little girls with another one on the way and working full time and trying to find time for seminary and family and ministry, the answer to how should we then live is sometimes just survive. We are all stretched thin. I hear it from my friends here at Lakeland, from my coworkers at work, from my people I follow on Facebook. I'm also really certain this isn't just a suburban American problem because when I talk to my friend Estella uh, in Anapa, Mexico, she also feels worn out with kids and grandkids and ministry and the struggles of life. So when we talk about how should we then live, I'm not intending to give a to-do list uh, in a tangible kind of sense, but I think the answer to the question of how should we then live is we should live out of our understanding of God. Our lives should be to-dos that come out of that understanding and they'll depend for each and every one of us on, on what we hear. So this all brings me to the night before Easter of this year. I had run downstairs to grab a glass of water and I found a note that my daughter had left for the Easter bunny. It was lying next to a few carrots and a, a little plate of carrots. It said, Dear Easter bunny, this is Carolyn, and I am nine years old. I love Easter because Jesus rose from the dead. Without him, the world would not be very nice. The risk as a really busy parent is to read something or hear something cute that our kids say and just be entertained by it. But if we listen closely to what our children are saying, we can learn a lot about God. On this Easter night, Carolyn did not write I love Easter because Jesus rose from the dead and saved me from my sins. She has not yet adapted to the very kind of American Western focus on salvation that we all have. Instead, she wrote something kind of challenging to our theology. I love Easter because Jesus rose from the dead. Without him, the world would not be very nice. Honestly, when I think about it, my reaction is, well, sweetheart, the world is actually not very nice. Russia is pulling apart Ukraine. Ebola is spreading throughout Africa. Children from Central America are fleeing gang violence by the thousands. The world has more refugees displaced from their home at this time than any other time in world history. Little girls are getting kidnapped from their schools simply because they want an education. Israel and the Palestinians are on the brink of war. Gunmen continue to go on rampages. And here in our very own little corner at Lakeland, Car accidents and diseases are taking the lives of those who we care about. Nope. This is a very dark world indeed, sweet Carolyn, and it's hard to understand how Jesus rising from the dead 2,000 years ago has really made it any better. Yet, it has. She is right. It is a brilliant theology, actually. Not that Jesus rose from the dead and then the world became this really great place. But if Jesus had not risen from the dead, this would not be a very nice place at all. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul explains it like this. He says, I consider that the suffering of this present time, they're nothing compared with the glory about to be revealed to us. 
We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly while we hope for adoption, the redemption of our body. Paul had a really nice life before God crashed in. He was a Pharisee and a Roman citizen just going about his business, and by the way, his business was persecuting and killing Christians. And then he's blinded on the road to Damascus. According to his own account, he meets Jesus in this experience. At this point, Jesus has already ascended up to heaven, but he meets Paul, and it completely changes everything for Paul. After this, Paul suffers greatly. He's imprisoned, eventually he's beheaded. Because of what he knows about Jesus, though, he'll say, the suffering of this time is nothing. It's not worth comparing to the glory that's about to be revealed. We hope for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. This current suffering and darkness are nothing compared to the joy that is coming. Paul's whole view of life and how he viewed it and lived it was turned upside down when he met Jesus. So when we ask the question, how should we then live? We have to begin with how we understand who Jesus was and why he came. I think if you ask a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, especially probably non-Christians, they would say, Jesus was a nice guy who came to set an example of how we should behave. He was kind of like Buddha and Gandhi and just demonstrated like a non-violent approach to resolving conflict and caring for your neighbor and being a nice person and finding peace and stuff. Jesus did display a way of living that was pretty extraordinary. But if he was only an example, how do we explain in Colossians where it says that he's the firstborn over all of creation, that by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. The more prevalent Western Protestant answer to why did Jesus come was to save us from our sins and show us the way to heaven. And the Bible does say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but in just a few verses after that, it also says that he came to give life in all of its fullness. The thing is that a lot of religions offer us moral codes to live by and secret knowledge for getting from here to heaven. If that was all that Jesus also brought, then Christians would not have been martyred for their beliefs, and Jack and Hannah in China would be free to share the gospel without being worried about getting arrested or worse. What frightens kings and governments about Jesus is that when he rose from the dead, he unleashed a whole new story. The story goes that God not only wanted to save his children from sin, but to redeem the entire creation, to make the whole world whole and holy. The world might be full of darkness and greed and evil, but Jesus brought a new way, and he will eventually defeat the darkness. Remember that in the beginning, God made the world, and he said it was good. It did become dark through sin and death, but Jesus came to make it right and good again. This is why Jesus performed miracles. It wasn't a magic show to impress people into believing him. It wasn't to attract crowds. It really wasn't even to be nice to those people. It was to glimpse redemption. It was to see the kingdom. When he healed the blind, when he took the hand of the crippled and said, stand up, he was showing the world redemption, wholeness. Think how startling his words would have been to the powerful people of the first century, like the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, theirs is the kingdom. It was all the wrong people as far as the government was concerned and the religious leaders of the day. When Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, he was speaking to people who were under Roman rule. They were really longing for a king, 
who would come and defeat these boisterous Romans, the soldiers who were stalking their streets by day and night. On the hottest day, a soldier could go up to a Jew and say, carry my pack for the next mile. And Jesus tells them, don't carry it for the next mile. Carry it for two. Two miles on a hot day, some king. Kingdom living is shocking, upside down way of doing life. Do something outrageously unexpected, lavish grace even on your enemies, and reveal God. In seminary, we have a whole class on this that's called missiology. It's the study of what God is doing in the world, his mission. In Latin, it's called the missio dei, the mission of God. One of the pioneers of missiology was a man named Leslie Newbigin. Newbigin is really interesting to read. He was, it was about the 1940s that missiology really had a lot of research and, and study in the Bible about it. And Newbigin explains this whole new way of living like this. We look forward with an eager longing to a Christian society that is the final goal of all of God's redemptive love. But until that day, we're called on to seek on earth a society which as far as it can be granted to us, reflects the glory of the city to which we look forward. We're called to be a community of people that in the midst of all the pain and sorrow and wickedness of the world is continually praising God as the first obvious result of living by another story than the one that the world lives by. How should we then live? As followers of a radical Jesus who came to tell a different story, a better story, as a people who don't flee from darkness, but reflect God's light into the darkness, a reflection that is full of grace and love, all because God is full of grace and love for every single person that we meet. We cannot undervalue how very important this work of light reflecting is, not least because the world is dark and it is eagerly awaiting a redemption, even if it doesn't know that that's what it's called. We all long for it. That's why we spend billions of dollars every year to go to the movies and see wrong made right, to see good conquer evil. We know that darkness cannot win. Somewhere there is light and that love wins. I'll tell you when I realized how important it was that the world was looking for the light. When I was in high school, I had this terrific friend. He was a really quiet guy. He was really thoughtful and kind. I just really liked being around him, just a nice person. We were in um, the play Much Ado About Nothing together, and I remember him every night waiting backstage for me before we do our curtain call. And he'd always be smiling and encouraging and tell me, good job, and we'd take hands and go out for our big bow. Not long after Much Ado was over, I found out that he had actually quietly been suffering an unknown illness that was keeping him up every night. Finally, the doctors were able to diagnose him. It was leukemia. He missed a lot of school after that for his treatments, but. Eventually, he was in remission and graduated and went on to college. About a year later, I was here in this building back when this building was all-star sports before it was Lakeland, and I was playing indoor soccer next door. And I will never forget coming off the field and seeing him meekly waving from behind sunken eyes and a pale face. I remember being so startled by his sickly appearance that I couldn't think of anything to say. I hugged him gently and said a few quick hellos, but I was really young and naive and really uncomfortable, and I quickly begged off and got back to my game. He left sometime later, and I never said goodbye. A few weeks later, I heard through a friend that he had passed away. I felt terrible. I drove back from college to attend the funeral. During the funeral, the hospital chaplain spoke because my friend didn't have a church home. He said that my sweet friend in his final hours had asked to see the chaplain because he had a lot of questions about what lay beyond this life. When I listened to the chaplain, 
I was grateful that he had been there to comfort my friend, but I was heartbroken that I had been so callous to look my dying friend in the eye and not hug him tighter, to not be a light bearer, to say, I love you and so does God. You are a precious creation and he has you in the palm of his hand. I relived that night on the soccer field for many years after leaving that funeral, sad that I did not share any light that he must have been so longing for in those final weeks. But he is not alone. We all need to hear it again and again. God has got this. He's got you. He loves you. We humans, we're like balloons that leak. We need the truths told over and over so we can stay filled up. The darkness is overwhelming, but we are longing for the light. Paul told his church, churches, when he used to write his letters, he'd say it a dozen times over and over again. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any created thing will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How should we then live? As those who tell a better story than any the world has to offer? As reflectors of the light? Jesus is the sun. We are only the moon reflecting back his light. The world is dark, but Jesus came. I love Easter because Jesus rose from the dead. Without him, the world would not be very nice. So what does it look like in a really real way for you and me just living our lives every day? A few days ago, for me, it looked like my seven-year-old in the backseat of the car while we drove down the road. She saw a going out of business sign and she said, Mom, I just hate seeing going out of business signs. It means that somebody has lost their job and they're probably really sad and it makes my heart hurt. She has God's eyes. She sees with God's eyes. She sees his creation. She knows that it is struggling for wholeness. She shines a light of compassion. Children are really good at shining compassion in God's light. It looks a lot like a funeral homily at Conception Abbey. Conception Abbey is an um, abbey that a lot of us go to to do solitude sometimes in Conception, Missouri. And 12 years ago, a gunman went into Conception Abbey and um, shot several monks. Two of them were wounded and two of them were killed. Father Philip and Brother Damien. I followed the Abbey on Facebook and on the 12-year anniversary, which was not too long ago, the monks were posting several reflective things about that day and, and how it still impacts their community. And one of the things that they posted, I think, really reflected light on, on that day just recently, but I'm sure 12 years ago as well. It was from the funeral mass, and it was the homily that Abbot Gregory gave. He said, when brutal deeds are enacted, it calls for heroic and radical forgiveness. Such acts of violence as happened here could only have come from someone in desperate need of help. Hatred and anger and unwillingness to forgive only keep us crippled and bound by the evils that surround us. If we endure evil and do not allow it to conquer us, we will share in the victory of Jesus Christ in the hidden life of the resurrection. It's hard to understand what redemption will look like. N.T. Wright, who's another awesome author, and has written a ton of really good stuff, says, imagine the most spiritual person that you know, and that person is just a shadow of what we will all be like when we are redeemed. We can only experience the moonlight right now, but when God's work is complete, the sun will shine. When we see teams of folks from Lakeland go to Haiti, we see God's light reflected. These folks go into the orphanages, and those little ones climb in their lap, and they wrap their arms around them, and they are glimpsing the kingdom. One day, we will all feel God's arms and we will know that we are completely cared for by the Father. We see God's light reflected when we work at the Eastland House downtown. 
And this neighborhood that only has seen so much dilapidation and destruction sees a house that was broken and battered that's becoming new again. It's all for their benefit. This is a picture of the renewing of our bodies and the world around us that God has promised. God's light is reflected in Liberia when volunteer doctors and nurses heal women with fistulas. And they hold their hands and they comfort them and they assure them that they are worth it. They're worth being healed and whole because God comforts us and promises us that we will be healed and whole someday as well because we are worth it. We reflect God's light in our own homes when the news fills our living room with fear and sadness and yet we speak with hope and assure our children that God is near, even in the brokenness. It's okay to be sad. We don't need to be fearful though, not in the way that the world wants us to be fearful. A good friend here at Lakeland recently shared that when her children hear something terrible that someone did and they ask, why would they do that? Her husband says, they didn't know how much God loves them. He's telling his children that there's hope for everyone. Some people just don't know that it's out there waiting for them. I had an interesting moment a few years ago over lunch with a coworker. It was getting near to Christmas and I asked him if he and his family did anything special for the holiday. He fired back rather angrily I'm not a big Christmas fan. It's a stupid holiday for a stupid fake God. I was a little bit shocked because I'm pretty open with him about my involvement in church and that I'm a Christian, and I really wasn't sure what to say, but he didn't leave me a lot of time to stew about it because he went on. I read the whole Bible as a kid, and I went to my Sunday school teacher with questions, and she got mad and told me to stop talking and asking so many questions. Anyway, I've met a lot of Christians, and I'm not impressed, he said. I really wasn't sure what to say, and I figured diving into a theological argument over a work lunch was unwise, so I just said, I'm really sorry your Sunday school teacher said that. Kids should have their questions heard. That stinks. A few weeks later, he and his wife invited my family over for dinner, and just as she laid out the last lovely dish of dinner, my daughter, who was four at the time, said, shouldn't we pray? <laughs> I was a little uncomfortable because I knew this was his home, and I knew what he thought about God, but he was gracious and said, sure, go ahead. So we gave thanks for God, for food and friends, and we enjoyed a nice meal. Since then, our families have taken little vacations together, and I continue to share my life highlights with him, even when they include God, but I never try to sway him with argument. I don't think my argument would do much as far as light goes. I think God is patient and powerful. He can shine through genuine relationships much better than short, loud arguments. I keep this reminder from Galatians on my monitor at work so that every day I can remember, let us not become weary in doing good. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. There's a song on the radio that still gets played on Caleb and stuff a lot, and it says, all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. It's a really catchy tune, but it's a really terrible theology. We are not just passing through. God is not sending this baby girl to muddle through this thing called earth just so she can finally get to heaven. No. This is my father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And he left us a very tangible sacrament of himself as the body and blood to touch and feel and taste and know that redemption is very near. Someday, we shall live today as though we believe it. Would you stand with me for the benediction? I'll close with a prayer from the book of Hebrews. Now may the peace of God, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, so you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever.